Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reform Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I teach Old Testament as well, and I'm joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology, Dr. Peter Lee, our dean of students and professor of Old Testament, as well as Dr. Paul Jean, our instructor in New Testament and pastor, senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church here in Vienna, Virginia. And we have a special guest today. We're taking a little bit of a break from our Apostles' Creed series to talk to our good friend and colleague, Dr. Nicholas Reed. Hey, Nick. Hey, it's good to be here. It's great to have you. Um, Let me tell you all a little bit about Nick Reed so you can know who it is who you have in your midst. And, uh, and then we will uh, we'll, we'll delve into some particular uh, projects that he's been working on of late that I think will be of great interest. Nick is a graduate of the University of Southern Mississippi with his bachelor's degree in fine arts. Is that right? Right. What, what was the fine art? I have to ask. <laughs> uh, theater, actually. Yeah. Was it theater? Performance. Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. Um, went on to, uh, he finally became a Christian and went on to reform theological seminary <laughs> in Mississippi to get his MDiv and went on from there to do a master's of theology at the University of Aberdeen and finally to finish up with his doctoral work at Oxford University. Nick's been involved in all kinds of projects, ancient Near East related, and I will probably just start using the the abbreviation A&E because that's how it is in my head. So he's been involved in all kinds of A&E projects, including a project up at New York University, which was involved in the study of the ancient Near East and did that as a, was that a postdoc fellowship for about a year after you finished? Yeah, it was a fellowship uh, where they bring in um, various people from around the world at different stages in their career. uh, And you do research, work on a topic or two and uh, give a public lecture and contribute positively to the academic life of the community. Excellent. Nick's published broadly on a variety of issues related to ancient Near East, old Babylonian Kish, and you've done some work on manuscripts coming out of there, and recently done a good bit of work on slavery and incarceration or imprisonment in the ancient world, that if we've got some time, I'd love to come back and talk about that, Nick. But as we get started, just kind of giving a little bit of a review of the work that you've been doing. I'd love to hear for the sake of our students and those who are thinking about this, this field of study, how is it that you went from Bachelor of Fine Arts and theater and uh, to, to an, a seriology degree in focus <laughs> uh, and teaching at RTS in Orlando? Well, it doesn't, doesn't everyone take a theater degree first before? <laughs> I just thought that was the path. I'm, I'm from small town Mississippi, so. Um, but I do have shoes and I can read. Um, so, uh, no, I, I grew up in the Bible Belt, of course, and uh, I didn't become a Christian until I was a junior in college. And uh, so I just, uh, at that point, I, I felt called to ministry of some sort, but really didn't know what that looked like. My number one goal was to avoid further education at that time. And so I reasoned I'd go to the mission field. (laughs) Not the best reasoning, but that's what I thought I would do. And I had spent some time on some mission trips and um, had a great time with that. But I became Calvinistic in my soteriology for reading my Bible. And I was at a church that just held different views. And uh, so I asked a friend, uh, where do you go if you 
believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. And uh, he recommended I try a PCA church. And um, it happened that Ralph Davis was a pastor of a PCA church in my university town. And uh, so I wandered in there and uh, with my, my very pregnant wife, uh, she was eight months pregnant. And so this was a really hard decision, but we were just um, amazed at the way in which Dr. Davis could bring alive the Old Testament and was just a faithful expositor and um, so really fell in love with reformed theology there and they suggested i go to rts jackson um, and my sister was in that area so not too far from home it, was a, it seemed like a great option but it's funny because i grew up an hour and a half two hours from rts and had never heard of it so that was you know it had been there since before i was born um, but i had never heard of it so i was like great that, what's that <laughs> And then went up there and uh, happened to have some friends, uh, or at least my wife knew some people who were attending there. And um, yeah, so I, when I got there, within the first couple months, I ended up getting a job with John Curry. Uh, and my first job was to look at all the footnotes in his Deuteronomy commentary, I think it was. I did it for numbers as well. So I just sat there and chased down footnotes the whole time, just just making sure that they were there weren't mistakes. And um that's really where I cut my teeth, I think, on research. And I got to work for Bill Barkley as well. And, and then when they both went to Charlotte, I got to work for Ligon uh, at the church for Spurs Jackson. Uh, and I think just during that time, I mean, I got to have Miles Van Pelt for Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And um, that was just a great, great opportunity. And uh, I learned so much. And then, you know, I just realized I had some gifts I didn't know. I mean, I've I remember my Spanish teacher growing up in my small high school didn't know Spanish. <laughs> so uh, it just really didn't have much opportunity. Uh, I mean, she knew a little bit, but she really didn't, you know, she might be her heart. She might be listening, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> but uh, but so, so I, I just, I realized I had some gifts I didn't, didn't know I had. And so I went to University of Aberdeen and did a Master of Theology by research under Lena Sophia Tiemeyer. Uh, and she taught me Akkadian for the first time. And uh, I wanted to work on actual texts that hadn't been published in museums. And um, Aberdeen's not really set up to support that sort of research. It's a great place, um, but just, you know, it's very specialized what I was wanting to do. So I went to Oxford and took a third master's degree because I was changing fields from Old Testament to Assyriology and, uh, and then did my doctorate there and landed, my, landed uh, the New York Fellowship you mentioned before at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. And then uh, ended up here teaching Old Testament RTS eventually. So in Orlando. Let me ask you real quickly, because I think a lot of people hear us on here talking about our, our fellow colleagues at RTS. You know, and we think about someone teaching Old Testament. There's three Old Testament professors on this call. And yet we all have very different kinds of degrees. And it's interesting to think, you know, very few people do something like just an Old Testament, like theology or something. That'd be a very specific kind of degree. But Dr. Lee and I are kind of on the linguistic side of things. I did Hebrew poetry. He did a lot, a good bit in, in Qumran. Help people understand Assyriology. What, yeah. what is the field of Assyriology and what sets that apart from other kinds of ancient Near Eastern degrees? Yeah, so Assyriology, uh, well, the field is incorrectly named, as you know, uh, when, when before decipherment, around decipherment, they were looking at these tablets and it was you know, cuneiform writing, wedge writing, and uh, they said, oh, this all must be Assyrian. So the field was titled, uh, you know, called Assyriology. Uh, now we know that there's lots of Sumerian and Babylonian and other material cuneiform was used for Ugaritic and all sorts of other things. But 
I think the best way to describe it is, is um, I study the languages and cultures around the Old Testament. I mean, I think that's the best way for our yeah. students to kind of understand. Um, so I work on the environment in which uh, the Old Testament was written. Yeah, I remember, I remember I was thinking about going into Old Testament studies, and I, I was looking at the degrees that all of my sort of heroes had, the ones who went on to write in the field that I was kind of emulating, and they all had degrees of this kind, these kind of like literary textual degrees, not to say anything about a different kind of degree, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's such a great strong base from which to teach Old Testament, you know, so to have that kind of broader background. Yeah. Not to mention, but I, I think it's just really, really interesting as well. I mean, there's so much that one can learn by studying um, both the, the literary context, uh, linguistics, and also the broader ancient Near Eastern context. Absolutely. Not to mention the theater degree. That's that's a great fact. <laughs> hey, Nick, uh, you've done a lot of writing, not just in your area of Assyriology, but now, uh, and I guess I'm thinking of recently. Uh, a, a work that you, uh, along with a few other colleagues, edited on covenant theology. As I know, uh, this is part of kind of a collaborative effort that the seminary has been doing amongst our faculty. We had an Old Testament intro, a New Testament intro that uh, the RTS uh, faculty put together. In, in some sense, this could be seen as the contribution of the theology-minded guys and their work. I'm curious, how did, you, how did, that, how did covenant theology uh, come about as opposed to perhaps just a broad systematic theology, a, one, a new one volume systematic theology? I don't know if that ever was part of the discussion. And uh, yeah, so how, how, did that, um, how did that all come about? I, th I think a lot of this conversation probably predates my time at RTS, at least in terms of the, you know, the Bob Kara and, and Lick and Duncan as they were thinking about the next step after uh, the OT and NT volumes. Um, but I think also having something a little bit more narrow like covenant theology kind of helps us understand the approach that we're taking in the other two volumes and, and, and lays it out uh, in meaningful ways. And so I imagine that's part of it. I mean, obviously we love covenant theology and um, that's, that's the perspective we, we teach from uh, in many of our classes. And uh, there's just so much to be done on, on the topic. And uh, so I think that uh, RTS felt like this was a, a good time for that. And I was recruited during the uh, interview process to uh, work on this project as an editor. Uh, so, so maybe that was just my, my uh, naivete that they, they said, we, we can get this guy to do this. Um, but uh, it was a lot of work, but it was very satisfying uh, in the end. That, that's such a huge area of discussion, as you know. Uh, and it's amazing that we could actually have a, a group of uh, colleagues uh, be able to write a, a volume together and, and be somewhat unified in, in, in our thinking. Was there anything hmm. that uh, you, would you say uh, is outstanding? I and mean, what is what is something that's really outstanding about this volume that you would say? Well, I, th I think that we had the opportunity to uh, tap into our somewhat large faculty uh, and their specializations. And I, I think that um, one thing that we wanted to demonstrate was the breadth that you can have within confessional bounds, that the confession is not necessarily restrictive in, in the way that we think about theology. And so we wanted to sort of model that. We're not sort of trying to be prescriptive of you've got to land exactly here. We wanted to sort of display that and represent uh, the different viewpoints our faculty has uh, on this uh, within the confessional bounds. And I think that's probably one of the more meaningful contributions 
Uh, some other contributions, I think, you know, a lot of the, the, the former textbooks, they work through the administrations of the Covenant of Grace in the Old Testament, uh, but specific chapters written on various areas of the New Testament. Uh, I think that was a great contribution. I think, you know, Scott Swain's chapter on um, New Covenant theologies is a good orientation to what's being written a lot. Uh, there's a lot of things being written in that area right now, so that's very helpful, uh, a good orientation to that conversation. But part of what I like about what he does in that in that chapter is he also positively lays out our own view uh, about the relationship with the New Covenant uh, to uh, the Old Covenant. Um, so I think those are some of the contributions. I think the historical work also, uh, there's some really remarkable chapters in there as well. It's a resource that I've recommended for the reasons that you say, Nick. I mean, I, 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 we teach a women's Bible study up here. I know there's one, something like that going on down in Orlando too. And pretty regularly, someone will say, you know, I, I didn't know I could read the Bible like you guys read the Bible. Can you tell me more? You know, and I've been now since this volume came out, sort of pointing people to that volume as a whole, but also to some specific essays within it. I mean, it's not it's not light material, but it's accessible. I think you all did a wonderful job in your editing and, and guiding the authors um, in it. But let me put this to you. This is kind of a big question, but give me your this doesn't let's say more than an elevator pitch for covenant theology. OK, a little bit more than just in the elevator. Those few seconds. Why is it important that we have and nurture a good confessionally faithful theologically sound biblically based covenant theology what's what's the what's the need there why is that a desideratum for the christian reader of scripture today yeah uh that's a great question i think that um i mean there are a number of ways you can uh, you know to answer that question i think i would start with saying um covenant theology is not the goal of systematic theology I think Scott Swain, my friend, colleague, boss, I would say is, you know, it's the study of, uh, he has, I have to say boss, uh, otherwise I might get in trouble. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's the study of, of God and all things in relation to God. I mean, that's the, the, the focus of systematic theology. Um, and uh, covenant theology is, is one of the ways in which the Bible helps us to understand that. Uh, how do all things relate to God? So covenant theology is not the center of the Bible or the most important theme of the Bible. There are other important themes like the kingdom of God, for example. And I think I like how, you know, Meredith, Meredith Klein, for example, said that uh, covenant is the way in which God administers his kingdom. So I think the reason why, so we, so we want to understand it as, as, as vital and, and, of course, important. Um, we don't want to sort of say it's too important. We don't want to elevate it to the most important thing in scripture. Um, but, but at the end of the day, when we're doing covenant theology, we're, we're trying to understand uh, what it means when God says, I will be your God and you'll be my people. I mean, that's the heartbeat of covenant theology. It's about that relationship that God is establishing and that future, to use the words of Hugenberger, uh, that God is charting uh, with his creatures. And uh, so that is really what, it, what we're looking at. And so you know, that's why J.F. Packer talks about Christianity being a matter of personal pronouns. What does it mean that he is ours and that we are his, that we belong body and soul to him? Uh, and so I think that's why every Christian should care about covenant theology is because uh, it's, it's about our relationship with God, both communally or you know, as a community, but also as individuals. Well, Nick, uh, thanks for being with us today. I sort of had a follow-up question just to interpreting the Bible. So your background is in A&E and, um, you know, for many of our listeners who probably will not look at 
Old Testament and New Testament background in general when they read the Bible. What encouragement would you offer as far as number one, the value of backgrounds? Like, um, because as you know, it's a, it's a difficult question. How necessary is it? And you know, there, there can be two extremes, like it's not necessary at all, or you know, without the backgrounds, we can't understand the Bible. So if you could offer some commentary on that. And then number two, where might be ideal starting place for someone that wants to have a kind of layman's but working knowledge of like Old Testament and New Testament back? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so so the first question, you know, how, how do we look at background or why is it important? Um, I think you're right. There are there are those who take the background and make it the foreground and they sort of run the Old and New Testament through that grid. Uh, I think that that can lead to problems, of course. There are others who go, hey, we don't need any of that. We don't need any of that to understand. And um, I think that's problematic as well. I think what we want to do is we want to be nuanced in understanding of the background. We want to see how it informs exegesis and interpretation, but we want to, at the end of the day, keep the background in the background. Uh, we want to focus primarily on studying the text. And I think that's just good methodology when you're studying anything. I mean, any kind of inquiry into text, you, you don't want to sort of reinterpret a text against a background uh, that, that changes it or sort of loses sight of the text itself. So, so there are areas where we wouldn't understand the text as well, perhaps, um, if we if we didn't know something of the ancient Asian background. Um, so we would we would be able to understand, for example, Abraham's covenant with, with God in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, we get some of that significance there when we look at Jeremiah 34, I think it is, and and the the passing through the elements. Um, but that really comes to light that that God's doing something really unique here when we look against the background and see that you know there aren't really any parallels where the sovereign that I'm that I'm aware of or that are extant today. Uh, where the sovereign only takes all the conditions of the covenant uh, upon himself, or even just the structure of uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and it's an entire covenant document. So um, the background has assisted us in in, in those ways, um, but we don't want to sort of reinterpret or lose sight of the text in that process. In terms of a layman person, a, a place to get some, some background information, I recommend to my students sometimes the ESB study um, Bible Atlas or uh, ESB study Atlas or Bible Atlas um, by John Currid. I think that gives some some nice orientation to geography, to um, some of the things that are going on around that time. That's a good starting point uh, in terms of background material. So if you're able to read some of the text yourself and you just want to kind of delve into it, context of scripture is uh, the best a, a resource for studying ancient Asian backgrounds in relationship to scripture. Uh, so those are the best translations. Everyone used to use Pritchard. Uh, really no one uses Pritchard anymore uh, these days. Um, context of scripture has really surpassed that. So it's about a four volume uh, work uh, if you wanna get into primary sources. And I think that would be one encouragement. If you're gonna do some Bible background or you read something about a connection, uh, that it's important to go and check the sources, the original sources, and at least try to read a good, competent translation of it. One final point about that, why we should care, uh, is because background has shaped the way in which we talk about theology and the way in which we talk in commentaries. And if you don't understand that material, and if you don't understand that terminology, it's going to be hard for you to track with uh, various commentaries that you read, or even any systematic theology, or any book on covenant theology in the last 50 years is going to be using categories adopted from or through ancient or Eastern background studies. That's really helpful, Nick. I think, you know, when we think about 
Reformed covenant theology, of course, two covenants come to the forefront here, covenant of works and covenant of grace. And given what you just said about backgrounds, I think sometimes maybe in the literature, you get people contrasting, reading the Old and New Testaments according to their own context and histories on the one hand, and then the covenant theology of the reformers on the other hand. And they want to say, hey, if you read in covenant theology into the text, you're actually being you know, anachronistic. You're not actually reading the text according to its own context. So how would you respond to this? And how does a reformed covenant theology actually fit with the biblical text? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you probably could answer that better than I can for sure. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think what I would say just to respond to uh, the idea of, of, of imposing something on uh, scripture that's anachronistic. I think that, you know, really covenant theology, we're just trying to do what the Bible does itself, whether it's in Romans chapter five. Um, whether it's in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, for example, uh, whether it's in Paul looking at Romans chapter four, he's looking at the relationship between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Covenant theology is really just trying to, to do exactly what we see in the Bible. It's also the terminology when Jesus says this is the blood of the covenant. Some manuscripts say the new covenant. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's doing covenant theology, essentially, and he's bringing the significance. Or the author of Hebrews. What, what is the author of Hebrews mean when he says that Jesus is better than the angels and better than Moses and better than Aaron and and that we have a better covenant. What is what does that mean, Hebrews 8? Uh, so all of those things, I think it's not an imposition or an anachronism. Uh, I think the Bible is consistently looking at God's relationship with us. I will be your God and you'll be my people in Leviticus or in Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. And so we're just trying to, to do that same sort of exegetical approach uh, when we do covenant theology. You talked about the, the kind of wide range of approaches to covenant theology that are available to us in the Reformed tradition. And it is interesting as you're, as you're kind of un, even unpacking this, you know, I, I love this discussion about what are, what are the aims of covenant theology and what's its limitations because it's not everything. Right. And sometimes it seems to be presented like it's everything and it's not, it's not yeah. the whole story. Right. And yet we do have these, we have these kind of covenant parameters or excuse me, confessional parameters that have developed over you know, history, particularly in the recent reform tradition that have been informed by general revelation, particularly in the last hundred years. Right. So we had, we had covenant of works, and covenant of grace, we had a notion of the covenant of redemption sort of overarching being developed. And then suddenly you get, you know, the Hittite treaties and the Neo-Syrian treaties, and they're start kind of shedding light, you know, and we've already mentioned Meredith Klein, you know, who, who was in, at least in reformed evangelical circles, was the one who kind of helped apply that into um, interpreting the scriptures. You know, as you're looking at the covenant theology volume that we've just put out there, and you're looking at the range that's available there in the, you know, even just in the RTS faculty, but the kind of finds expression. there. That's one of the reasons why I like this volume so much, because I love reading sort of different ways of talking about covenant, right, that, that are now extant today. If you could trace some of kind of the major, the major threads that you see showing up in the Reformed confession now and we can talk about this you don't have to give a definitive answer right now but um we can go back and forth but what are some of the major sort of parameters or or, or features of reformed covenant theology and on top of what you've already mentioned you know the application of kingdom for instance through covenant 
Well, um, Westminster Confession, Chapter 7, uh, to our theological standards, um, lays out a dichotomous position of covenant of works and covenant of grace. Um, and uh, it can be a, sometimes misunderstood, you know, the trichotomous position is not talking about the third covenant of being a covenant of redemption. It's it's whether or not the Mosaic covenant in particular is a subservient covenant, whether it's not, whether or not it's a third covenant, a mixed covenant. All of these were sort of being debated and looked at around the time of the formulation of the Westminster Confession. I think that what you'll see is a dichotomous position in the book itself. So that the, the structure is covenant of works and covenant of grace. Now there will be dif differences of opinion about where, how the Mosaic covenant fits within that, within our own faculty. So whether or not this is a republication of the covenant of works or whether um, something else is going on within the Mosaic uh, covenants. I try to deal with that in my chapter and try to represent fairly uh, that, that position. So I think that that would be one of the fundamental strands. I mean, we all obviously, we, we understand as a faculty, the Old Testament to be Christian scripture. I mean, we are studying it as Christian scripture ultimately at the end of the day. And we wanna affirm that. And I think we see that in our, um, in our volume. We, we also see, as you mentioned, fundamental continuity. Now, how we discuss some of this fundamental continuity, uh, there will be points of disagreement, and um, that's perfectly fine. But I think the, the Westminster Confession, when talking about the, the movement towards or why the New Covenant is better, when it talks about fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy, I think all of those things are very true and, and, and underlying a lot of what's going on in, in the volume itself. That we, we want to see this fundamental continuity, but we don't want to sort of say, hey, it's just the same. It's yeah. absolutely the same. We want, to, we want to recognize the movement from an altar with the blood of bulls and goats to a table with the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that shift, uh, I think, is, is fundamental to what we're trying to do and try to understand how the Bible relates to itself. And then that moves in towards um, a, a place for reformed spirituality, right? I mean, you know, how do we know, how are we made right with God? Okay, but how do we also grow in grace? Uh, and so I think that covenant theology provides a context for us to understand uh, our relationship with God and uh, the need for evangelical fruit uh, as well, um, which is produced only in union with Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your chapter on the Mosaic Covenant, Nick, was, I thought, particularly helpful in that regard in, in applying the Reformed Confessional, particularly Westminster Confessional background to these questions and seeing the confession as, as, as helping provide a faithful testimony to what scripture is teaching and as a guide for exegesis. And I thought that was really good in that regard too, and just sort of understanding these issues in light of confessional standards. Well, thank you. It was a really hard chapter to write, and I'm sure other people could have written a different and better chapter. Um, but I you know, when I was trying to, when I was trying to think of how do you in seven or 8,000 words delve into one of the most hotly debated subjects in covenant theology. I, I wanted to find some center ground to stand and work out from um, because there's so much you could do with a chapter like that. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was, a, <laughs> it was a challenge to say the least. Um, we could, we should, anyway. we could talk offline sometime about it. <laughs> no, I thought, I thought it was, it was great. I thought, I bet, I'm sure it was a challenge that you had, you had a lot to tackle and there's a lot of people here's the thing for me that always makes me nervous when there's a lot of people at varying levels of specialty and specialties in different areas who are all interested in the same question. 
that's a really yeah. hard field to walk into, right? <laughs> that's, that's a hard right. room to walk into and try to then start a conversation. So I thought, I think you right. did definitely. In many ways, that chapter on the Mosaic Covenant is getting at, in many ways, the the real crux to the, the state of the question, the state of the difference in Reformed Covenant theology. It's a question of continuity and discontinuity, as, as you were mentioned, and, and just the area of continuity is already a huge discussion, but, you know, you know, it's no secret to uh, to our DC folk that uh, I was I've been very influenced by Meredith Klein. He was my teacher, mm-hmm. um, and uh, his uh, his understanding of covenants have uh, has made a huge impact and, and an influence on my thinking. And, and Dr. Klein was always doing so much more with discontinuity than the continuity. And the reason why he did that is because he was really led exegetically that that's what Paul was doing. I guess my question, I don't know if I have a question here, as I'm kind of interested in your thoughts, uh, since you, since uh, your work on the Mosaic Covenant here, because in many ways, you know, and this is, this may deal with exegetical matters back in like Galatians 3, uh, as mm-hmm. Paul's kind of looking at Abraham, and then bang, you got Moses. Um, and uh, it sure seems like something's different. Uh, it looks different, where he even seems to raise the question, has God shifted his principle of covenant administration here? Paul's answer is no, uh, but the fact that you have something like the Mosaic Covenant that even seems to raise that question for Paul is the type of thing uh, that um, uh, that Dr. Klein, uh, you know, was kind of dealing with and wrestling with. What do you think? Is, is there, you know, is there more value? I don't know if this is a either or. As we have to, we have to do both, but is there some more benefit, perhaps, exegetically? in getting a, an understanding of how all of the sub-covenants interact with each other by doing more work in the area of discontinuity, uh, perhaps than, than continuity, because it, it does seem that Paul is doing that. You know, Galatians 3, mm-hmm. you know, 2 Corinthians 3, he, he actually calls the Mosaic Covenant uh, an administration of death and condemnation, as opposed to you know, the, the new covenant, which is, uh, and he's, uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm belaboring here. Uh, what do you think? Is there more value perhaps in doing more work in trying to see the, the discontinuity versus the continuity? I mean, I know it sounds like a cliche answer, but I think you really have to do both. I mean, because, you know, looking at the Mosaic Covenant, which is obviously um, inferior in numerous ways, uh, it's temporary. It's primarily, though not exclusively, Jewish administration. So, you know, you think about the expansion to the nations. Uh, it's shadowy, so it's full of types. It's, it's not as powerful. Uh, it doesn't have as much efficacy, for example. Like that's why you have to continue to offer sacrifices. So, so there are numerous ways in which this discontinuity is, is really important. And I, you know, and, and, and what Paul's doing with, Paul's dealing with, I think, you know, so we have, there are different views uh, about what Paul's doing there. I mean, I take the view that Paul is, is um, responding to inappropriate understandings of the Mosaic Covenant, people who are wanting to go back. And I think that interpretation is supported by Romans chapter 9, where he says they pursued the law as if justification was able to be achieved by it. And then he quotes Leviticus 18.5, do this and live, just like he does in Galatians 3, where there he's also dealing with inappropriate responses uh, to the law. Or you could take John 8, for example, where Jesus is dealing with the Jews who are, you know, sort of resting and trusting in the fact of who they are, rather than understanding what Jesus is calling them to. So I, th- I think that, um, you know, there's there's obviously clear um, continuity, but uh, discontinuity that's going on. But 
I think that the fundamental continuity is also important to hold on to because uh, sometimes, or you know, we don't want to we don't want to be looking at it and saying that. Um, well, let me let me take a step back. I think that you know what the OPC report was trying to do when looking at republication was trying to say what was in bounds and what was out of bounds, and the the administrative the administrative view of republication. They said you know that's that's within the bounds of of the confession, but seeing it as something fundamentally different would be outside of Westminster Confession chapter seven. And I think I think that 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 just kind of reminds us that we we don't want to flatten things, but also we don't want to just move towards discontinuity entirely. But I, I should say I'm not an expert on Klein. I've read Klein. I think I understand Klein. Um, but there are a lot of people devoted their lives to studying Klein, had the opportunity to study under Klein. I did not have that opportunity, but I have tremendous respect for him. And I feel like sometimes when people disagree with him, he does not get uh, treated with respect <laughs> that he deserves. And um, so that's one thing I wanted to bring out in my chapter as well, is that he was he was fighting for, you know, justification by faith. He was uh, he was fighting for covenant theology itself. Uh, he was arguing for a, a number of really, really important doctrines that I think were sh shaping what he was doing exegetically as well, because uh, he was, you know, he was writing in a context. And uh, so I, I hope that um, that I honored him, even as I sort of would view things slightly differently uh, in, in that small area, though certainly been influenced by his exegesis in numerous other areas. This is an interesting historical side note that OPC study that you mentioned, and for everyone who doesn't know, this is a study done by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church on the idea of uh, the Mosaic Covenant republishing, and you had to put that in quotes because the, the question is, what does that mean, right? What does republishing right. mean? Uh, the Covenant of Works. Interestingly, when that, meet, when that group met face-to-face, -face, they met on the RTS Washington campus, if you didn't know. A kind of interesting thing, they would use our space to come and meet, and I think it's a very helpful study in terms of, in terms of working through these issues. It gets quite technical at points, so lay people may, yeah. uh, may struggle with that a bit. But I also think that in light of this conversation, a lot of times when you're coming to the text and you're trying to deal with discontinuity versus continuity, a lot of times you'll find the question is, what is the theologian responding to? as in many ways, sort of the, 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 a really helpful question in terms of just a reading strategy for the theologian, whether it's Klein or somebody else, you know, and, and Klein saw a threat that was uh, undermining the doctrine of salvation or justification by faith alone, rightly, you know, rightly understanding that as a threat. And that, I think, also guided a lot of his exegesis down the road. Just like you'll find people who are, I mean, like all, 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 some of our best theological doctrines, of course, come out of responses to heresy. And, and mm -hmm. it's not, I'm not even saying that that's an unhealthy thing. That's a healthy way of doing theology. Absolutely. I know for myself, when I came to Reformed tradition, having been raised in American evangelicalism, so much of American evangelicalism is dispensationalist without even saying that it's dispensationalist, right? And, and seeing the unity of the covenant history of covenant progression from the beginning to the end of the Bible was something that was just beautiful. It, it had never occurred to me. I think it's actually going back to that earlier question that sometimes our students ask, you know, I, I want to read the Bible this way. I didn't know you could. It makes sense. You know, uh, the Bible makes sense. It is one story. You know, that, that aspect of covenant theology really, of course, heightens the continuity side of it. And you can't run to one radical extreme or the other. You've got to recognize that these things are both 
uh, being offered, to use another cliched term, uh, intention. <laughs> well, and, and I think, you know, Klein did a tremendous job of training what, probably two generations almost of people who were able to understand the Old Testament in a way that was biblically faithful and to uh, read it as Christian scripture. Um, so his influence is, is just remarkable in our circles. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, he deserves uh, all, all honor, <laughs> you know, like I, I have tremendous respect for his writings uh, and what he's, what he, what he did and uh, his faithfulness just in the classroom and outside of it. So. Amen. Yeah. Well, that's okay. A lot of us, I don't think understood hey. half of what he was saying anyway. <laughs> Nick, uh, I, I have just one more question. I love, um, I love your background where you, you know, obviously are specialists in the a &E languages, but also you're rich in theology and so forth. Would you mind sharing just how, because usually people dichotomize, I'm either a theologian or not in biblical studies, but can you share a little bit about just your experience as far as how one has inform the other or how it's been a dialectical process because I think that that's what we need. We, we need in one sense less specialization and the different you might say departments speaking to each other and that really comes out in everything you've said so far. So would you just mind sharing like what that experience has been like uh, for you to be both rich deeply seated in theology but also having a really high appreciation for ancient Near East. Mm. And maybe you can comment on how sometimes if I can make a generalization how sometimes those in biblical studies can go astray because they almost have a suspicion towards theology. Yeah, those are great questions uh, or comments. And, you know, I think for me, the, the more you learn and the more you specialize, the more you realize what you don't know. And for me, uh, just trying to have a healthy view of the body of Christ. Um, like I feel even in this conversation, you know, I'm really grateful for you all hosting me, but I feel like in many in areas, as we start talking about other things, I should shut up and just let you all talk um, because you've devoted your lives to specialized study in these certain areas. And uh, I respect and appreciate the gifts that you have, and I don't feel threatened by those. Um, I feel like we're working together towards something. And I feel like um, doctoral dissertations can sometimes just lend themselves towards focusing on only one thing and then feeling like that's the most important thing in the world because that's the thing you focused on for so long. And, and for me, I just, I didn't want to lose sight of that, uh, of the importance of, of seeing how theology is helpful in our exegesis, how it's meaningful, that we can have, you know, theological interpretation of scripture uh, and that we can sort of work together towards a common goal of understanding the Bible faithfully. Uh, and so part, part of what I want to do too is, is just try to help my students understand that um, you, don't, you don't have to be a seriologist to understand your Bible, um, but there are things you can learn. And, and so that's a helpful, I think, in between. Uh, so I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm also not saying that, it, you know, hey, I'm the most important class you're ever going to take. Um, I, I'm surrounded by colleagues at locally and in RTS and then colleagues around the world who have tremendous contributions. And I want to sort of lift those up and say, go study Bob Inc. with Gray, you know, or fill in the blank. Um, and so that's, that's what I just want to have a, a healthy perspective of the body of Christ. And then I think that serves, I think trying to model that is important for students as well, because 
there's there's a temptation to start to think that your work is the most important work, uh, and and we don't really want to move down that road. That leads to all kinds of problems, both morally, spiritually, and uh, you know, and even even theologically, I think. So uh, that would be some of the things. And I think I forgot your other question. <laughs> mm, I'm not sure I remember either, <laughs> but you know, I loved your response. So thank you. <laughs> Hey, Nick, after having done the editorial work on that volume and, and having read all those essays uh, that deal with covenant theology from such a wide variety of um, uh, perspectives and factors, uh, you obviously are, are very in tune with the current discussions on covenant theology. Uh, is, is there a particular area that you would like to see further, that you think need, they need further work in the area of covenant theology, uh, wh where's an area, you know, I, I, I'd like to think that, you know, this definitely is gonna make a, a, a great contribution in the dialogue, but no way can it be exhaustive. The field is just too huge. Uh, where would you, where do you think, uh, what area of covenant theology would you say is, is, is an area that really can use some more work, both at the academic and maybe even at the uh, ministry level? Yeah, well, I mean, at the, at the, the sort of lower level or ministry level, I think it would be great to have a volume that parents could use for their, with their children. Um, something that was very accessible to understand, well, why was I baptized as a kid? Okay, why do you read the Old Testament to me? How do I, how do I understand um, Leviticus in relationship to Galatians? And all of those sort of things, uh, I think, you know, I think for my, my daughter who's seven or my boys who are preteen and teen, um, there's not a lot that's super accessible uh, unless you're into theology, you know, unless you, I mean, you could read John G. Rhodes, The Covenant's Made Simple, but again, I still think that there could be even a lower uh, or more simple, simplified version of that. I mean, it's a great book. I'm not knocking it saying lower. It's meant to be accessible. He's, you know, that's why he titled that, uh, but I think we could even do more in that. In terms of the, the higher level, again, I'm not an expert on, on these things, and I'm sure others would be able to give better answers, but I, we're definitely going to see, and we are, we're seeing a lot of New Covenant theology and progressive covenantalism. Uh, so I think that's going to be an area where that's really going to, that's where the conversation's going, as opposed to, you know, formerly it was in, in dialogue with dispensationalism. Uh, we certainly still see that to some extent, but we're seeing more discussion now uh, and it's pretty hard to be honest to keep up with all the things that are being written on that uh, unless you specialize in that area. So I think there's going to be time for more uh, discussion about that. I mean, and, and then everything really got a short, short change, didn't it? I mean, we had to um, do a chapter on the Mosaic Covenant. We had to do a chapter on Hebrews. So I think that there could be also particularized studies that would be valuable uh, for a really opening up and providing the exegetical foundation more intentionally for what we're what we're trying to argue and what we see going on in the text. Uh, those would be some areas. And then I'm sure Greg could give lots of historical studies that would be valuable for that. Thank you uh, for that response. I, I think it was great. I, I particularly appreciate the, the practical volume that you mentioned about covenant theology, particularly for our children. You know, it is the ultimate goal of covenant theology is to remind us of that bond that we have with the Lord, that communion, that sweet, pure communion that we have with them. And to not allow our children to appreciate that is a real loss. And, uh, and, and I uh, also, I agree with you, as I, as you mentioned, I thought, yeah, you're absolutely right. Each chapter of that volume can turn into multiple monographs on their own. And, and, and 
I guess it's going to get uh, it's going to keep guys like you busy for the uh, career in terms of, uh, of publishing. I'm certainly busy, that's for sure. <laughs> Nick, you, you've also written a good bit over the last four or five years, by my count. I might be wrong on issues dealing with refu- uh, fugitives, runaways, uh, child slavery, uh, imprisonment in the ancient Near Eastern world. What, what brought you, I, I want to move in a little bit on this, this current interest of uh, interest in topic and, and ask you just what, what's brought you to that and, and kind of where, where are you going with those studies? Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I just like to keep it light. Um, you know, <laughs> happy topics. And um, you know, I, th- I think part of it is probably my interest partly stems from just growing up in the deep south and, you know, trying to process, you know, the context in which I grew up. Um, and most Southerners I know, I mean, I'm from Mississippi, we have a romantic sense of home. Uh, we have a sense of roots. And yet there's also, a, you know, a troubling history. Uh, and context that that we're also trying to, to figure out. So there's, uh, I think, uh, Wright Thompson describes it in his new book, Pappy Land. He's from Mississippi, uh, where he's looking at, um, you know, the Pappy bourbon. And uh, he describes, the, you know, thinking about the South as it's like this, I, I can't remember the exact terms, but sort of this connection between basically romance and hypocrisy and um, how those two things dwell together. And, and, so for me, I think just growing up and being around and hearing from time to time in various places, you know, uh, reconstructed uh, you know, uh, revisionist histories uh, or um, being surrounded by those questions just growing up in the South all the time led me to an interest in, in okay, well, how do we understand slavery from a historical perspective? because I was interested in doing Old Testament, I, I thought studying slavery in the broader context, because we, we only have snapshots in the Old Testament about what took place. And you get a variety of laws, you get a few, a few stories, um, you know, narratives about it, but you don't really get socioeconomic documents and um, all of the sort of material, the wealth of material that we have from the ancient Near East, because 100,000 plus texts available. And um, so it was just kind of a chance to delve into a topic from a historical perspective and study both theory related to that, um, what is slavery, how do we understand it, uh, and thinking about our intellectual baggage. When we think of slavery, we have one particular uh, viewpoint uh, in mind. And, and, then, um, and then also that kind of led me to We've got, let me just think about uh, sort of, I, I came across people who were fugitives being held in prisons, basically, and, um, or, you know, prisons, inverted commas. And um, it, it got me interested in that topic because uh, I just realized that not much has been written on it. And so that kind of, I think that's probably a big reason why I got the fellowship at NYU and um, just been sort of something I've been dabbling with and trying to wrap my head around for a while. And it seems like this study is probably going to be out within the next year, I hope so. That's excellent. So there's a, you're saying there's a, there's a clear kind of continuity between forced labor and, and imprisonment. Is that right? I mean, I'm looking, I'm watching the, tra- the trajectory of your study kind of move in that direction. Just yeah, like, I, I think so. And, and, and one thing that's interesting to me is that social history is, is, uh, is a context in which we can ask hard questions about what it means to have a just society and ask them in an apolitical context. Whenever yeah. people were thinking about in our culture or, you know, in, in our history, when people were thinking about it, you know, well, we should, slavery's bad, okay? And then they started thinking, but it's too big to fail. You know, what are the economic 
ramifications, all that sort of stuff. Well, now as we're in a, as a culture thinking about incarceration, mass incarceration in our own culture, it leads to other questions about, well, you know, okay, we recognize the problem, but what do you do? And so for me, uh, studying the history of prisons has allowed me to think a lot about those sort of questions as well and delve into recent works about uh, basically what's going on in our society and trying to think through, okay, what does it mean to be just um, mm. and to deal with people who are guilty of criminal activity? Uh, mm. That's fascinating. So you've got a long, you got a long form piece. You got a, you got a book coming out on this. Is that right? Or you're, yeah. you're working on that? Yeah. Okay, Particularly on uh, from the invention of writing to 1595 BC or the first fall of Babylon. That's my focus right now. I'm probably oh, going to expand that out uh, in another volume. Is that old, old Akkadian and old Babylonian? So, so yeah, it'd be Sumerian, so Earth 3, Old Akkadian, Earth 3, or no. some early dynastic, some stuff like Rukhagana and, um, uh, for example, Laws of Urnama, uh, Laws of Hammurabi, uh, but then a lot of personal letters. Uh, no. And there's a hymn to a prison goddess as well um, that, I, that I work on. And uh, she, she, gives, uh, she snatches people from the jaws of death, and she refines character like silver and gives birth to new life. So the, so the metaphor is a correctional one. It's not penitentiary, it's correctional. Well, it, I mean, it, you setting. can sort of think about it uh, a little bit that way. I mean, that's certainly what I initially thought, but this is, this is a little bit different in that, so it's correctional in a sense, but it's ritualistic and it's, it's ritually based. So it's about purification before the gods. Yeah, That's fascinating. Well, we look forward to that and we'll, we'll need to have you back out to talk about that when it, when it comes out, because we'd love to delve into that more deeply with you nick until then thank you so much for your time thanks for spending this morning with us and talking through some covenant theology um it's always a pleasure it's like a, it's like a fresh cup of coffee in the morning to talk about some covenant theology uh with a good ancient yeah. near eastern scholar um so we thank you for this and we look forward to having you back on here god bless to you and everybody down at rts orlando and for everyone else take care question right now is if a prospective student asks me if they want to study Old Testament, where should they go? Washington, D.C. or Orlando? You know, what should I say? I wonder what you all think about uh, this. <laughs> I'm going to, uh, we, we have a guest, Gray, so we're just going to let him answer. Right, right. <laughs> whatever he wants to say. Although I, I, I kind of, come on, Gray, where's your loyalty here, man? <laughs> to be honest, Peter, you're the one who's making me question my loyalties here, so. <laughs> All right, before things get out of hand, let me uh, let me let me change subjects. Um